Crimson Tower Studios. Welcome to the Old World Podcast, the unofficial podcast for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and the original podcast to bring you both discussion and actual play in 4th edition. I'm one of your hosts, Lance, and tonight I'm not only joined by my co-host, Matt, we're also joined by the writer, game designer, and legend, Graham Davis. Thank you, Graham, for joining us tonight, and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, it's great to be here. So before we get started, Graham, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so that our listeners, if they don't already know who you are. Which would be pretty amazing. But True. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do in the gaming community. Okay. Well, uh, let me see. I've been with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay since the very beginning. Um, Games Workshop hired me out of college to uh, help develop the game in uh, 1986. Before that, um, I was studying archaeology and playing way too much AD&D, but the offer from Games Workshop was just uh, too uh, too good to refuse, and I ended up working on everything for first edition and uh, uh, been freelance in the games industry ever since uh, leaving Games Workshop in 1990. I've worked on uh, various uh, tabletop role-playing game products and uh, a few video games besides. And right now, um, thanks to the amazing uh, loyalty and uh, passion of the Woofrook fan community, we have a fourth edition, and Cubicle 7 has given me the uh, unprecedented opportunity to revisit the Enemy Within campaign and produce a director's cut of that. I'm having the time of my life doing that. (laughs) And uh, before that, um, I put a little thing together called Rough Nights and Hard Days that was based on three adventures that I already uh, wrote before for first edition. Well, two for first edition, one for third, and uh, added a couple more. And I think that's what uh, we'll be talking about today. Absolutely. So before before we get to that, we first like to thank our outstanding Patreon backers. So their generous donations help to make this show possible. So I think we have uh, one person on the docket today, right, Matt? Indeed. Thank you, John McDonald. Thank you for your support. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you, John. I appreciate it for sure. Um, and thank you for joining us. And in the example above with John, um, you know, by buying us a beer, some tea, you know, you can hop on over to our Patreon page and support us for only a couple of dollars a month. You can help us continue to bring you discussion and actual play in the grim and gritty world of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. So you can find that out on patreon.com slash old world podcast. And I think and now this is one of the things we like to do at the beginning of the show here just kind of talk about what kind of gaming we've been up to. So Matt, you want to get us started? What have you been up to for gaming wise? Sure. So I finally, after 32 years of life have was able to play in a D and D game. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've made it this long, played this many different role playing games without ever playing D and D before. Which is amazing to me because I still have never played D and D. So you beat me to D and D. I never thought that there would happen. Go. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun. So it was at an event that was um, being put on by a group called Jasper's Game Day, which is so Jasper's Game Day is a group that supports suicide awareness. 
and it was founded by a young woman named Fenway Jones. She's actually uh, an amazing young woman. She's still in high school, and she started this organization. Yeah. And they run game days all over the country, raising money through different auctions and uh, events to raise money to go to suicide awareness. So this particular event, the GM for the game that we played in, his name was Jake, and he's actually the host of the popular YouTube channel, The Mini Mini Terrain Domain. And what he does on that channel, he makes incredible terrain for miniatures games. And and really, like I've checked this channel out recently, and it's it's really cool, like very very simple, like almost household items. So you can make your own like miniatures and train and different things, like pretty on the cheap. Yep, he goes through and breaks down how you how you can put the stuff together, and some of the concepts and and ideas that he uses. So in this particular game, we came up to the table and there was a giant pyramid on the table and i mean giant it was probably close to three feet tall three feet square and it was just a completely solid pyramid well once we started playing he gave us the initial introduction to the story he lifts the top of this pyramid off and inside was a completely filled out completely detailed painted um interior of this pyramid and all of the, the room that we came out in, we could see everything, but the other rooms that were attached were covered by pieces of cardboard. So we couldn't see what was in the other rooms until we opened the door, in which case he pulled the cardboard off. And by the time we were done, Sounds we'd awesome. gone through multiple levels of this, and it was quite stunning. So big shout out to him. He was an amazing GM. We had a great time. So for my gaming, I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. I was in San Diego a week ago or two weeks ago now. And uh, one of the things, my wife and I bring some games. And the big game we were playing a lot was Journey to Mortar. It's a little... I was say, you call it a big game, but... Oh, no, it's not a, a little bitty game. box. Yeah, it's it's a roll and write game uh, by Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, it is There's not much to it, but it's just a fun little game. So, I mean, other than my normal role playing, and that's been really the only thing I've gotten on the table besides, besides some uh, Warhammer. What about you, Graham? What kind of gaming have you been up to lately? Well, the uh, the enemy within director's cut has been keeping me pretty busy uh, lately. Um, but uh, I do have a, a friend locally who runs a, a monthly game night, and we've been playing, uh, actually playing a lot of Illimat, which is a nice little game by uh, my friend Keith Baker, who uh, designed the Eberron setting for Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 about 10 years ago. Um and it's a very imaginative little game, uh, sort of cards, and uh, it's hard to describe like everything Keith does. It's sort of quirky and interesting. Uh, came out of a video from a band called The Decemberists, who he knows somehow or another through the Portland scene, and uh, they filmed themselves on a music video playing this game, taking the role of sort of Illuminati-type characters, and we're supposed to uh, get the impression that by playing this game, they're controlling the world. And uh, they came to Keith and said, uh, with these components, and said, why don't you make a real game out of it? And uh, Illimat is the result, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Fascinating. Yeah, that's really cool. Actually, I listened to a podcast called Campaign Podcast. That's uh, part of the OneShot Network, and they're doing... Uh, currently, they're running a world that's partially built on that Illimat game. 
um, they actually have some mechanics that they use where they draw those different cards and they have different meanings. So they're they're using it differently than I think he originally designed the game for, but it's like heavily inspired. And uh, that's cool. That's that's amazing. And a lot of Keith's works lends itself to that. I've never known a designer with such a talent for creating a simple game with just a few lines of backstory and you can imagine a, a whole world underlying it. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so let's move on to our announcement and news section. Uh, this is a part of the show where we keep you up to date on Woofrup and related news. We scour the web for juicy leaks and bits to satiate your Woofrup hunger. And and I have to say, it used to be that we had to scour the internet in order to find news about Warhammer. Um, Cubo 7 has completely changed that basically i scramble every wednesday to try to keep up with what's going on yeah now. to make sure we're not missing anything right, right. so with cubicle 7 related news the first thing we're going to talk about is another one of the team tuesday articles this one is about tim korkluski who is works with cubicle 7 and is in charge of american sales he runs the retailer facebook page for cubicle 7 or he works on it He's also a freelance game designer and has worked on several games, including Malifaux 2.0, Wrath of Kings, and A Song of Ice and Fire, which are all primarily miniatures. Miniature games, yep. yeah. Yeah, so I, uh, I, I'm interested to see if he's going to be at like Origins or, I mean, since he's U.S.-based, you know, Origins or Gen Con, which uh, I'd like to meet him. One of the things I really appreciate about these Team Tuesday articles is being able to put a face right? to the names. Right, because when you the you know the more that we're into Warhammer in the credits page of each of these books, we always take a second <laughs> and we look through it, and the more of these these books or the more of these articles that we're reading, the more I can say, oh well, I know who I know who Ben Scary is, and I know who Andy Law and Graham Davis, Sam Manley. These are all people that have had had those articles had those articles. So it's really interesting. If you're a fan of the work that Cubicle Seven does, I think it's definitely worth spending a minute to go and read those articles. Absolutely. So uh, in addition to the, the Team Tuesday, uh, we have several, uh, well, one main blog post that came out uh, from Ben, uh, Ben Scari. Uh, the gentleman, he uh, keeps putting out some awesome articles. This time he, he stays busy. Yeah, he does, man. I, uh, I, I'm excited. So because some of these articles are, are like actionable, like very usable. In oh, 100%. A game, right. So yeah. So we like, spoke at length about those in a previous episode, how, right. you know, when they put ones out that are about a species, mm-hmm. how important it is to read that article if you right. if you are that species or if you intend to play that species. I agree. Yeah, it's it's like, I feel like they should put them all together in a book at some point, like the lost, the lost articles of fourth edition. <laughs> but anyway, this one, he talked about NPCs. Uh, so he did a previous one about creatures and how to use them in your games, how to build them. He did the same thing here. Uh, he talked about like using mechanics to build your NPCs, using the uh, bestiary in the back of the book. Talked about things like using characters as templates, using a modular career method, you know, using the different um, rules in the back where you can give them different traits. Uh, and then he talked about like, hey, making full characters, right? For then, that's more for like your you know, nemesis kind your, of level. Your major villains. Your major, major villains. Yeah, yeah. Players that are going to be, or characters that are going to be involved right. for sure. And he even talked about creatures into NPCs. So like we got to see, uh, he talked about, you know, maybe they have like a Skaven informant or something, which is just a, I, that sounds so terrifying. <laughs> like, like, you know that they're going to, you know, betray you at some point. So, 
Anyway, he talks about bringing them to life as well, talking about motivation, defining characteristics and traits, which are all like really good ways to build NPCs in your systems. Uh, so it was uh, a very good article. So if you haven't had a chance to get it, you know, go look it up. Yeah, definitely an excellent article if you're a GM and if you struggle with things like this, because that that's something that I've haven't dealt with a whole lot in when I've been GMing is actually making specific like a character from the ground mm-hmm. up, uh, a, a villain type character, a nemesis type character. So I would strongly recommend this article if you're a GM at all. Absolutely. One of the things we have uh, currently in our hands that, that we haven't been able to talk about yet is first the starter set um, physically in our hands. Yes. And yep. it oh my goodness. It, it made it to the US. Yeah. And did you, Graham, have you gotten a physical copy of the, the starter set in your hands yet? Um, no, no, I'm, uh, I got the, uh, PDFs quite early on though. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's an impressive achievement. Um, it informed some of the things actually that I did with the, uh, the updated version of Bergenhafen in the first episode of the enemy within director's cut. Uh, it's a very nice, uh, town treatment and format. Yeah, that's uh, the starter set itself. So I, we uh, we did a big review with T.S. Lucar on that um, on the show here, but uh, at that point we only had the PDF, and right. so now we have the physical copy. and And I have to say, uh, having the what was it? One of the things you said, the quality of the cardboard. Absolutely, it yeah. it really it fits it right in line with what we've come to expect. Um, very beautiful production. The artwork is impeccable absolutely bulletproof and the the component quality on this right i mean everything we've had up to this point is just books yeah which have all been great but the starter set the the cardstock that was used is very good quality cardstock it is not like a paper sheet like Mm -hmm. you would expect in a lot of situations like this the maps that are in there they're not huge they're just you know eight and a half by 11 size uh, pages but the cardstock is incredibly good quality the artwork is very very nice what, what did you think about it, Lance? No, I absolutely loved it. I uh, The gatefolds that they have were... I, I love that concept. I've actually not seen a role-playing game do the gatefold concept. Yep. So I might be missing, you know... It's just I haven't experienced it, and it, it works so well. Uh, in the, the quality of the characters, I love how you can just spread them out, get good pictures, yep. flip them over, get a little bit of information, and then open them up and see everything you need. <clears throat> well, and, I even... I A buddy of mine stopped over earlier today... And he was interested in it, and I showed him those character folios and how the first thing he said was, oh, this is great. Right on the front, it tells you what, you know, how to play this character, gives mm-hmm. you a, a quick little summary of who they are, if, you know, what kind of um, player would would most likely enjoy playing this specific character, you know, whether you're really outgoing, if you're really adventurous or creative or or however. And he immediately... You had the same kind of impression, yeah. right? That that it's yeah. uh, it's a very good quality. Yeah, piece. it's it's all really good. I, I only have two things that I would I would in in their minor, but the the dice while they're beautiful can be difficult functional wise, and by that I mean reading them at a quick glance can be difficult. There's a lot going on on those D10. Uh, they're pretty, yeah, and and I love them, and I'll be using them for pretty much every game I play of Warhammer, but. It's one of the things you run into. A lot of Q workshop shop yeah. dice are are gorgeous, but especially the D10. There's not a lot of real estate there, right? Anyway, so yeah, and I, I agree right with that. I think Q Workshop makes some absolutely stunning dice, mm-hmm. but that 
they're not always as user friendly as other dice. And maybe it's because I'm so used to rolling dice that just have the the just the numerical number on it. Yeah. Again, these look great, but when we played with them the other day, we'd roll and from across the table it was really difficult. And even there was a couple times when I rolled the dice, said that I had passed a test and then realized, oh wait, no, I right. that's not a seven, that's a one or or vice versa. Yeah. Now the the GM screen is the other thing that I have. Like so, it has a built in the inside of the box. I don't know if you've seen this, Graham. Um, like if you've seen a mock up no. of it at no. all. Yeah. So it's like the inside of the box they use as kind of a mini GM screen, which is a cool concept, and it's a great use of the real estate. I'm not sad about that at all. Um, but basically, all it's done is underscore for me is the need for a full on GM screen for this system. Like, yeah. I, I needed it six months ago. Yeah. So um, I'm hoping that we're going to see some announcement about that soon. I mean, and even, man, like from the announcement to release is going to be probably a minimum of six months. And that's best case scenario. But I, I'm under the opinion that like the, it's nice for a starter set and it's it's enough. Yeah. But it just underscored for me the need that like that's not enough for me. I need a real GM screen with all that information there. Yeah. So. It was a convenient convenient use of that space like you said but right. it's 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 hard to really call it a gm screen i mean you could set it up on the table but it doesn't have you know nearly as complete of information as you would expect from a gm screen it works but that was the most underwhelming part of the starter set by far yeah. and and to be clear the starter set is amazing. Yeah. It is so valuable, worth the value. Absolutely, these are nitpicky things we're yeah. talking about. Yeah, don't don't interpret yeah. our criticisms as <laughs> as not. Uh, yeah, the the everything in that box is gold. It's, yes, it's really absolutely. really good. So now, having said that, I, um, I want to move on to we got we got a copy of the Reichland poster map, and I just sold this to you today. And and um, I'm curious, Graham. I know you've seen Andy Law's mm-hmm. uh, artwork for. Uh, the Reichland, the map, um, and they did a poster yep. map of that. Did you end up getting one of those? Have you had a chance to see that in person? Um, not, uh, not in the flesh, so to speak. I do have a, a very high, um, high resolution uh, PDF of it, which I'm referring to as I write. Um, oh, but sure. yeah, the po- poster size it uh, it looks like it will be amazing. Yeah, it is really, really nice. And for the record, I'm extremely jealous. I want a high-res PDF so bad. Um, they haven't released it. They've only released the high-res version as a poster. But um, it, it is yeah. – I, I only set my eyes on it today, the actual physical poster. And yeah. it is it is high-res. goes to show that they – Oh, yeah. They took the – And they got a lot in there. Absolutely. <laughs> so it, it's, it started as a very high-res map. Then they shrunk it down to fit inside of the – the book. The book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the the amount of detail, the little subtle things that are in there, and I only looked at it for a minute or two, but I'm certain if that was on my wall, oh. you can find all sorts of fun little little things that he uh, he put in there. Graham's like, you don't even know. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm writing about those little places <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh, yes, I am. And Yeah. If this, if this was a video call, you'd see me rubbing my hands like Mr. Burns. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> That's so cool. But anyway, so it's I think it's twenty dollars US, nineteen ninety nine. Well worth it. Um, I uh, I'm still I'm working some finances out to get a table copy. I'm I'm gonna figure out maybe what we're gonna do. So before we move on to other news, I think this is where 
I'm super, super excited, and I cannot wait to hear you talk about this, Graham. But last Wednesday, they announced the collector's edition of The Enemy Within. And whoa, doggy. Oh, my gosh. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about this? I mean, this is your baby. Well, uh, on one level, it is. Um, Really, the collector's edition is more of a question for Andy Law. Um, But uh, he showed me... uh, couple of the uh, cover mock-ups that uh, were uh, uh, the, the ones that were teased on the website just now. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, honestly, I know very little more about it than that. Um, I know it's going to include the, uh, the five main volumes of the campaign, each one in a slipcase with its own companion volume. And I know all about the content for those. But what else the uh, the starter set's going to... Uh, starter set, the um, uh, collector's edition is going to include uh, in terms of content. I, I'm not certain at this time. Well, there's, there's a few things uh, that they did tease out in the article. Um, so like you said, uh, the five different books will each come with this companion in a slipcase. The slipcase will have the original artwork, which is if you get the standard edition, that artwork will be on the cover of the book. But the um, in the special edition or the collector's edition, the that artwork will be on the cover of the of the slipcases because the books That's will have right. yeah uh, one side of the slipcase will have the cover of the book itself and the other side of the slipcase will have the cover of the companion Right. And that's so that they can put the tarot style I'm probably saying that is tarot. that right tarot. tarot the tarot style uh covers which just looks so cool um the ace of hammer like I want a, a, an actual deck of cards with these on it so I, I know if you'll permit me a brief anecdote, back in the uh, in eighty six, eighty seven, when uh, Warhammer forty k Rogue Trader was very new, uh, a lot of the uh, color text that we were writing in the studio. I don't know who started it, but there was mention of an imperial tarot with suits that included uh, bolters and uh, I forget what else. Um, and then some of the, uh, the flavor text, some of the space marines were using this to interpret the emperor's will. Mm. And um, I said to Jervis Johnson at the time, we really ought to make this as a, a physical product. And uh, we took it to, to Brian Ansel. It never actually quite happened. But uh, I'd be very happy to see this, uh, this tarot uh, come out as a physical product from Cubicle 7. We'll have to see if, they, uh, if they'll do it. Um, but of course we don't want them to delay any, uh, any of all the other things that are in the pipeline. Right. No, no, we absolutely don't. But, but I, 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 I would, I think you speak for the entire Warhammer community when you say that we would, we would all like a deck of these sweet tarot cards. And I do want to mention too, that I know some of our listeners will listen to this podcast at home, others at work. Some people are listening to it in their vehicles. You, whoever you want, wherever you are, you should, uh, Stop what you're doing, pull off to the side of the road, and take a minute and go look at the images that they've released for this so far, because they are stunning. This so set good. this set of books is the kind that demands a shelf of its own that will be a like a an heirloom set of books by the time you're done because they are right. they are beautiful. 
Yeah, and they they are a little pricey. Um, so like the entire set is seven hundred and fifty dollars. Um, you can get it all, but as part of that package, you also get access to a monthly developer diary that Andy Law is going to be writing. Uh, and I know that that's going to be that's a really nifty concept idea. Um, where they'll be talking about some of the stuff that's going to be in the books as they're going along. Um. And and are are you going to be involved in those developer diaries at all, Graham? Do you know? I expect so. Yes. Mm. Um, uh, I don't think Andy wants to distract me from uh, finishing up the campaign <laughs> right now, so he hasn't mentioned anything. But uh, I certainly think uh, I, I expect I will be. Excellent. I'll be happy to if asked. Anyway. Right. Well, yeah, it's, there's a lot. So there's some bonuses to getting all of the books all at once. And that's one of them. Uh, Obviously purchasing these comes with the standard PDFs that Cubicle 7 always does. Uh, In addition, we now know the names of all five of the manuals. And, uh, and I, I I know that uh, we were at the uh, Gen Con last year and you kind of tease some of these these potential titles. And I think they ended up being exactly what you wanted them to be. Uh, I, cause I remember you teasing, uh, was the, uh, I think so. Yeah. With the, the one exception of the final volume, we knew it was going to be empire in something, mm-hmm. but we, uh, empire in flames was already taken and empire in chaos was going to be the, uh, hogshead rewrite from the nineties, which never happened. There's a fan written, uh, empire in war, and uh, eventually we settled on Empire in Ruins. Ah, great title. Seems like there's always bad things happening to the Empire. They're either in flames or in <laughs> chaos or in ruins. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's like the old Chinese curse. They live in interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you think about it, it's, I mean, again, you mentioned $750 is a lot. That's true. But you are really getting 10 books for that price, there right. are collector's editions that come with a lot of bonuses. It's not completely outrageous for somebody who's a big fan. No, who, who will yeah. utilize it for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, given that the uh, the main volumes are 160 pages each, and the companions are 96 each at, at our current reckoning. That's around a thousand pages of content right there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely awesome, and it comes out to about seventy-five dollars a book, obviously. Yeah. And uh, and I know that you can be you can buy them separately, like you can buy, you know, Enemy in Shadows, you know, collectors by itself, like just that one slipcase and the two books together. Um, and then obviously they'll be selling the standard editions. They haven't put those up for sale. These are advanced pre-orders. I do want to mention that. So if you go to Cubicle Seven's website, which by the way is at cubicle7games.com. You can uh, go ahead and pre-order those now, but as an advanced pre-order, they will be taking time. So um, they give you a bunch of details on the website. I'm not going to repeat what they say uh, in the interest of time, but it's definitely a cool product. So if you haven't seen those, definitely go check them out. All right, let's move on to the last little bit of news that we have. So it is convention season. Convention season is really already underway. Right. I know UKGE just finished up, I believe, or is it going on right now? I think it's going, I mean, it's finishing up today. Yeah. With that being said, the Old World Podcast is going to be attending multiple conventions this year in some way, shape, or form. So first is only a few weeks from now, and that is Origins Game Fair, which is happening in Columbus, Ohio. So I, Matt, will be at Origins all five days. 
I'll be there promoting both the Old World Podcast and Grand Con Gaming Convention. So if any of you are going to be at Origins, you should let me know and we can see about uh, connecting and you're going to want me to sign your books. I know I can do that if you want (laughs) um, for a nominal fee, but uh, I'm also actually going to be participating in one of the games that's being ran by the Cubicle 7 group there. So yeah, that's going to be awesome. Are you going to be at Origins, Graham? Uh, not at Origins, but I will be at Gen Con. Okay. Well, that brings us to Gen Con, which we attended in full last year, which was an amazing experience. It was. This year, we are going for just one day. So Lance, uh, you and I and Steve will all be at Gen Con on Saturday this year. Right. And and there's a you're doing another seminar uh, at Gen Con, right? Did, did I see that right, Graham? Um, yes. Yes, I am. Um, I'm going to keep the subject uh, under wraps for the moment, but it will be announced in due course. Excellent. Yeah, I, I saw it on the uh, the events page, so I, I knew that was mm. we knew we had to be there for that. So uh, so anyway, Graham will obviously be at uh, Gen Con, and uh, will you be working the booth this year as well? Will people be able to come and find uh, you? At- I will. At- yes, I'll be at the booth, and uh, I believe uh, Andy Moore couldn't make it last last year, but he'll be there as well. Excellent. We haven't got to meet Andy yet, so uh, that would be pretty sweet, like uh, you know, in person. Cool. Um, I'm super exciting. There's a and there's the team at Cubicle Seven is growing, so uh, lots of cool, lots of coolness going on. But that's not the only con. That's right. the The last con, at least so far, that we're going to be attending this year is Grand Con, which you've heard me talk about. Grand Con Gaming Convention is held in Grand Rapids, Michigan, August 30th to September 1st. I will be there the whole weekend as part of the staff. So again, if you are in the area and are going to be coming to Grand Con, let me know. I'd love to say hi. Uh, Lance, you are also going to be attending this year. Yes, for the first Steve, time. Steve and I will both be there as well. We'll just be there Saturday, though. So uh, we're going to uh, go check out. There's some map sessions and some gaming. We'll be around. I'm pretty sure we'll be wearing our Old World Podcast shirts. So you know, definitely seek us out, find us, send us a message Uh We'd love to connect if, if you're going to be there. All right. One last little bit of news before we get on to the main topic. We And we're going to make this pretty quick. We are made a few little tweaks to some of the levels on our Patreon page. One of the biggest things that we uh, are adding, actually, is a new mini podcast called Campaign Deconstruction with GM Lance. And look who it is, GM Lance. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so uh, there. You first off, you can get the first episode of Campaign Deconstruction for free. You can go to our Patreon page, which is uh, patreon.com slash oldworldpodcast, and you can find it on there. Uh, but basically, this is a little 20 to 30 minute mini podcast where I talk about every actual play episode we release. I will release a corresponding, uh, think of it as the companion to the actual play <laughs> that that we're doing, and uh, I'm going to talk about things like what worked, you know, as a GM, as a as a GM, what I thought worked, what didn't work, uh, you know, how I felt the session went, what kind of lessons or tips I could give based on what happened there. Uh, so we've released uh, episode two to our. It's a Patreon exclusive for our two dollar and above uh, members. So if that's something that you find interesting. Uh, you can check it out. Um, even if you might not, um, the first episode is free. So definitely check that as well. So, yeah. And I, yeah. I will say just as a kind of a little bit of a uh, spoiler for the first episode, one of the things I found incredibly interesting, you talked about how in the first actual play episode, you came in not knowing what any of our characters species or 
uh, classes or careers were going to be. So right. you you prepared an, uh, an adventure to work regardless of who we decided to be, which I found that really fascinating. Yeah. So plug and play adventure. Yeah. So. <laughs> yep. So if you if you're interested in that, uh, check it out. Again, it's Patreon.com/slash/OldWorldPodcast. All right. Well, enough of all the crazy news. Let's get on to the main reason we're here, the meat of this show. So having Graham on tonight's show is perfect because we're finally going to get to do our review of Rough Nights and Hard Days. Graham not only wrote the adventures in this book, but he also wrote the original adventures that several of these adventures are based on. And we'll get into that in a little bit. We're also going to talk about, there's additional sections. This book isn't just adventures, some additional sections as well at the back that we're going to talk about. So do your final check-in to the Three Feathers as we go over our review of Rough Nights and Hard Days. Uh, Before we dig into the review proper, let's talk really quickly about spoilers. First off, a large portion of this book deals with the five adventures, and it would be very difficult to discuss this book without having any spoilers at all. Having said that, we plan to be careful, and we're not going to have any major spoilers on this. Um, but we will be discussing each adventure in general. There might be some minor spoilers in there. So if you are wanting to be 100% you know, surprised and your GM's going to run this, then this might be the point where you want to shut off. However, we're going to try really hard not to have anything too groundbreaking just to get you an idea of the adventure. If nothing else, I would argue it should get you excited. Absolutely. To play uh, Rough Nights and Hard Days, which is essentially its own mini campaign in itself. That's true. So uh, let's dive in. All right. So opening up the book, the first thing we get to is a foreword that is written by Graham Davis. So Graham, you basically kind of just talk about how you took the original adventures and kind of tweaked them for fourth edition and then made it from, you took it from three to five, right? That's right. Yeah. This all started uh, when I was first talking to uh, Dominic McDowell of Cubicle 7 about getting involved with 4th edition. And uh, I'd had this idea for a while because um, A Rough Night at the Three Feathers, as I think everybody knows by now, was a, a bit of an experiment. And it worked out better than I could ever have hoped. And I did a couple of other adventures in the same style. And... Um, just uh, because, for no particular reason, I included a couple of threads to link them together. And I said to Don, well, how about I develop this into a, a mini campaign, you know, a book size, add a couple more adventures, give it a, a continuing story. Because Rough Nights kind of finishes with a, a number of questions unanswered. And right. uh, it sort of begs for a sequel. And so that's what I did. I updated um, the original Rough Nights, another adventure called Nastasia's Wedding, which I wrote for first edition, and uh, a section of the third edition adventure I wrote called Edge of Night, uh, which uh, also fit with the story. And then I added a couple completely new adventures and uh, smoothed everything over, strengthened the links, and, and made it into a little mini campaign. Well, uh, you, sir, did an excellent job with it. I'm very excited. In fact, this mini campaign in the introduction section talks about different ways you can use the book. Right, which is really, is really nice because not everybody, A, is going to want to necessarily run it as a full campaign. Not everybody is going to want to run it as a, a, a starter or like a prequel into the Enemy Within campaign, which are just a couple of the ways that you can run it. So 
uh, there's five ways that are listed in here in, under the introduction as a campaign of itself, as a, a beginning portion of the Enemy Within campaign, or simply uh, five separate small adventures, which you can you can pick and choose when, where you would do that, how you would connect them together. And even within each adventure are different ways to to utilize those, how you can connect it to a different uh, campaign, how you can, can weave it into a campaign. And even if you bought this book and didn't use any of the actual adventures that are in here, which would be foolish, of course, but <laughs> there are tons of resources, awesome maps, stat blocks for all sorts of different characters, creatures, NPCs. So there's, there's a wealth of information in here, even if you're not going to use it in any of the other ways. Always a priority with Wolfrop Adventures. Um, when we first started uh, publishing the Enemy Within Campaign Adventures in '86, um, the sort of state of the art was the dungeon module for D and D. Sort of set the template for that. And the thing with those was, after you'd gone through the dungeon, um, the product had no further use, and we always wanted to make sure that um, everything we published would have a continuing use after the uh, the gaming material had been played. So, for example, the original enemy within had a lot of information on the um, the empire as a country. The original shadows of a broken half and had the town set up as a sandbox. Death on the Reich had the river adventures supplement. And I wanted to do the same with uh, Rough Nights and Hard Days. Um, because everything's location-based, you've got some typical uh, locations, an inn, a castle, an opera house, uh, various others that are, are going to be useful in an ongoing campaign. You know, you've got the maps, you know the layouts, you've got some typical NPCs, and you can weave any, any number of adventures of your own in the same setting. Right, which makes this such a great resource, right? Even if you're you're not running this this specific adventure, if your your group and your players come across an inn, you could grab this book off the shelf, flip open to the first couple pages, and there you have a ton of interesting information about an inn and how you know maps uh, of it, the different NPCs that are going to be found within it, and all sorts of things. So. Being able to utilize this as more than just a adventure that's ran and done is is a really great way to to, to design products for sure. Well, and I like the fact that they have different plot lines, right? So it is so crazy, right? There are seven plot lines going on in the Three Feathers, and you know, in theory, if you're just looking for something quick and easy, you could just grab one of those plot lines to plug into your own game. For all the pieces you need are right there, and I I like that concept too. But I have to admit, this isn't a format even today that you still see. Like, I don't see a lot of adventures written basically going down a clock, you know, at this time, this time, this time. It's not something, and it makes so much sense. How do you keep seven different plot lines straight as a GM? You have specific things happening at specific times. So it's really genius, obviously. And and everything I've read ports that. The first one, the Rough Night of the Three Feathers. Now, what I've read, because I've, I've read a couple. Now, I never ran the first uh, first edition of the Rough Night at the Three Feathers, but from what I've read, this one might be the one that's closest to the original with the fourth edition rewrite. Yes, uh, I would I would say it is. It's um, really there wasn't much that I felt needed to change, and 
because it's the original and the most reprinted and the best loved, I didn't want to uh, disappoint anybody by changing anything that uh, they might be expecting. Oh, that's that's understandable. The, the classic, if it isn't broke, why fix it? Right? Exactly. Right, exactly. What about um, the actual conversion process? Like, did you find converting like stat blocks and different things to be interesting or fun or difficult? Like, what was that for you? Well, the the credit here belongs to uh, to Andy Andy Law who developed it um, because at the time when I was writing it, uh, this was prior to Gen Con last year, and the rules were still being finalized. To some extent, I was writing blind, and I provided, um, I think, first edition stat blocks for everybody. And then uh, Andy went through and converted all the stats for fourth edition because, uh, you know, he was more au fait. He uh, actually did have them the most recent version of the rules day by day by day. And if you remember at Gen Con last year, we didn't quite get the, uh, the rule book together in time, but there was a printout of a PDF on the Ubicle 7 booth. That's how in development everything still was right so uh yeah he uh, he had the task of uh providing all the stat blocks excellent if you're a new player or you're new to fourth edition or you've never played rough night at the three feathers this is definitely a great adventure if you're looking for something it, it, i like the format so to give an idea for if you you don't own the book or you're, you're looking at it the format essentially for for most of these adventures breaks down with hey gm here are the plot lines there are several things going on and it gives you like a synopsis of everything that's going on and what to expect there's a little breakdown telling you how the adventure could potentially start off or how you might fit it into your story etc with locations which is nice an overview of the specific uh, in some cases in this case the buildings that you're going to be right seeing and are going to be with great maps, color maps, oh, yeah. even at one point, like in the Rough Nights, it says on the X, you know, your guards are standing where the X is on the map kind of thing. And then it takes you through a breakdown of the time. And and this, I think, is the the big thing that blew everybody's mind is like nobody did this before. You So at 9 p.m., this happens. At 9.15, that happens. You know, and as you're going down the line, your seven different plot lines all kind of intermingle and work together based on the time of night or day that it is. And then the adventures all follow up with a bunch of stat blocks, uh, all with great art, explanation of the character, and not only how they fit into like the world, but the adventure specifically. So again, I would say you got seven different plot lines going on. That immediately scares me as a GM. But the way this is laid out, is very simple. You know, I'm breaking down. I, I just need to worry about what's going on right at this time. And if I need a stat block, they're all in one place. Right. Not only are they all in one place, but uh, again, this is something we've talked about at length. Every time we talk about these books, when we get them, and that is the art on these characters are absolutely incredible. Every single NPC named NPC on here has a piece of art that shows the character and they are all there what we come to expect from cube wheel seven. And that is nothing short of excellent. Right. I'd also like to note that if you are running any campaign, even if it's not Warhammer and you need a great name for a noble or a baron or a (laughs) baroness, this chapter is pretty much all you'd ever need to come up with an amazing name for a character that would fit that role or an NPC. Right. 
All right. So uh, to, to bring us back here. So the first one was Rough Nights at the Three Fathers. And then we have a day at the trials. Uh, the day at the trials was one that uh, Rough Nights at the Three Feathers is is kind of crazy. I would imagine as a player, you would be like trying. I bet you that's most of the fun, right? It's just trying to keep up with what's going on. I imagine it very much as um, there was a, a class of movies that sort of were popular up until the early to mid 60s. They started in the 40s and it was generally set in a hotel or some other busy location and all kinds of stuff would be happening at once. And it was great fun to watch. And that was the experience I wanted to uh, to recreate. Well, I feel like the a day at the trials was just when I was reading that one, it was almost there's a I don't think it's any uh, I don't know if it'd be a spoiler to say there's a duel that's involved in this and so much going on. You have like it's almost I imagine the cameras focused on this thing, but everything else is going on around the edges. And um, actually, one of the things I kind of wondered, like um, when when you're writing these is like pacing something that you like consider or look at. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it is. You know, I, uh, I start by taking the events and breaking them down into 15 minutes increments. And um, definitely it takes a little bit of work to make sure that uh, I've got everything happening at the best possible time for uh, to maintain tension, to keep plots going, uh, to confuse and uh, entertain people. Um, that's probably the uh, most significant part of the of the work of creating scenarios like this. And what kind of tips would you give, I guess, uh, for a GM running one of these to to keep everything straight? First and foremost, don't panic. Uh, in the words <laughs> of Douglas Adams, um, you know, uh, just follow follow the timeline and uh, be flexible because. The timeline is everything as it should happen if the PCs don't take a hand. And of course they're going to take a hand, and of course that's going to uh, impact all sorts of things. But have fun with it. That's that's part of the fun as a GM. There's no right way or right order or right timing. Just uh, Just go with the flow and enjoy it yourself. That's great advice for any GM for sure is just to – to roll, roll with the punches and go with the flow. You even, Absolutely. there's a, a sentence in the introduction actually that right at the end, uh, where you wrote when things go wrong as they surely will, you decide what happens. It looks daunting at first, but it's no problem. Once you start, honestly, that it's just honestly, a matter of yeah. just, just having fun rolling with the punches and just kind of go with it. Yeah. You know, let the players, if you're the GM, let the players entertain you as well. Oh yeah. It's a two way right. street. So I, I'm curious to know, Graham, out of the five adventures that are uh, in Rough Nights and Hard Days, which one was which one's your favorite? Oh, that is a tough question. A pretty loaded question. <laughs> it's yeah. Um, I have a great and enduring affection for Rough Night at the Three Feathers because that's the one that started it all. When I began to write it, I didn't even know if it was possible to pull something like this off, and uh, Everybody loved it. It's the most reprinted um, adventure for first edition. It was even reprinted in second edition. Uh, and 
Yeah, so it's hard not to love that one. But I also thoroughly enjoyed um, the third chapter, which is called A Night at the Opera. And uh, I had far too much fun writing that. The, the plots all came together very nicely. Uh, I was able to um, put in a few jokes referring back to an old Vincent Price movie that I've loved for years. Uh, we've got a guest appearance by Detlef Sirk, the famous playwright from the novel Drakenfels. And um, I just had a lot of fun with that chapter. Yeah, that it, that's a great adventure too. I, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit there, but the Drakenfels, like I just read Drakenfels on that trip I was talking about earlier that I went to California. Um, I had a lot of time on the plane when I wasn't playing a game. I was reading Drakenfels because they just re-released that, and I never read it before. So I was so excited to make the connection. I'm like, oh my goodness, Detlef is here in this adventure. It was so cool. Just the, and the fact that what you chose for the play, like the subject of the play that was happening, I guess I don't want to ruin anything there, but just that it was, it's well chosen. I, I really enjoyed, well, I enjoyed reading that adventure almost like it was like the, the it should have been at the end of the chapter of the book of Drakenfels, like the next chapter. Here's what happens. Yeah. The, the opera that uh, is taking place as a backdrop to all the action is actually one I stole from uh, Carl Sargent. It's one he mentions in uh, Power Behind the Throne. It's performed at the Middenheim Carnival. Oh, okay. Was it difficult to come up with like so many plot lines? I mean, you wrote five of these and each of these, I mean, you have the continuing plot line that goes through, um, but there are obviously mm. little you know, each each adventure has some of its kind of, I don't want to say one-shot like plot lines, but was it difficult sure. to, to connect them all? And um, No, not really. Um, well, some, I suppose, were a little more difficult than others, but uh, nothing was terribly hard. Um, I guess people will judge, you know, which plot lines they, uh, they think you know, some are stronger than others. But... Um, no, it was just fun. I would sit down and think, well, here's the location. Here's what I know is going to happen in the uh, through-going campaign storyline. Uh, what are six other things that can happen? <laughs> right. Uh, so my favorite is Nastasia's Wedding. Um, Nastasia's Wedding, yeah. Yeah, and I know that was a remake, but the uh, just the location and the background story of it working together uh, lots of plot lines going on, but a whole plot line based around like an item. Yeah, that one was. It's, it's interesting because I, I threw that plot line when I put it in was filler. Going back to the question you asked me a little earlier, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's the thing that people seem to have seized on. Uh, a lot of the reviewers and the feedback I've got to date uh, pick that that plot line out in particular out of everything yeah it's it, it's because i feel like in in amongst all the craziness i feel like there's this mysteriousness that is is really deep and deadly which of i mean every single one of your things is deadly here <laughs> as it should be yeah but um that one that one it was just like oh man that's so cool that was just that that has the cool factor for me like beyond the 
I know it's not like necessarily tied into the main plot, but I feel like that is one of the ones that I would, as a character, be like, all right, I, I'm going to take the risk, you know, to deal with this item here. So it's, uh, it's, it's very cool. That, that one's definitely my favorite one. It, it is the sort of thing that could spin off a, a cam campaign all by itself or Absolutely. also potentially derail a planned campaign <laughs> if the players decide to just go off and do that. Oh, man, because that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, I better know what this is going to do to my players because they're not going to stop until they have it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, you know, one of the things, so one of the things I noticed uh, at the beginning of the book, there's a map that shows you kind of where the suggested location. Now, I know that we talk about where that, you know, these, you could fit these into your adventure wherever you can change names, do all that. Uh, yeah. But some of these locations, if you were to run them as written, are pretty far away. Um, now, I'm curious, no. did you do that intentionally? Not, not necessarily intentionally. A part of it arose as an artifact of uh, three of the captors being reprints updates. Right. And their uh, locations were set. Um, and also, perhaps at the time, you know, Death on the Reich has sort of come to define Wolfric for a lot of people. So people aren't really phased about river travel. And, uh, you know, they'd happily jump in their barge and go from one place to another. Yeah, I actually thought this was interesting because with fourth edition, there's the in-between sessions rules, right? Those optional right. rules. And I felt, I just, I thought maybe you had been very intentional on this um, with adding, you know, the additional pieces like Kemperbad and things like that. Like, man, that makes an ideal, you know, ideal stopping point between these adventures for, for the in-between sessions, so... Yeah, it does. And and while it wasn't explicitly planned, it's certainly, you know, a welcome um, bonus, if you will. It's something I took advantage of rather than it being a, a guiding principle of uh, the way I approach the whole thing. So Lord of Ubersreich is the, the fifth adventure, the final one, and it, and it brings our characters, our players to Ubersreich. And obviously, that is an ideal place where you could potentially kick off from the starter set, uh, which takes place exclusively in Ubersreich, or even some of the free adventures that Cubicle 7 has put out. I, I, I love how I could take this book, I could take the Enemy Within campaign, I could take everything that's released, and if I play a lot of Wolfruff and never want to write my own adventures... Like I have everything I need. They'll all connect together really well. Um, I know. I think you've said before, right, that part of the intention was to be able to get them to Uber's Reich in order to connect, you know, the the additional stories with the enemy within. Um, what when did yeah. you know what the starter set was going to be when you were working on these? Uh, you know, I didn't. Um, the uh, this chapter actually is a development of uh, a section in a third edition adventure I wrote called Edge of Night. And um, I had heard that the starter set was going to be uh, dealing with Ubersreich. I knew no more than that. And all of the credit for the, the way that this dovetails so nicely, the way there are plots and characters that lead into the starter set and even into the enemy within. Um, all that credit belongs to Andy Law, who just did a fantastic job of stitching everything together. Um, he really uh, made this greater than the sum of its parts. 
That's excellent. Yeah, I, I'm and, very happy with the way it all ended up together because I, I really, like I said, I feel like I can follow a path through to the greatest adventure, you know, the enemy within. And it's all kind of set out there nicely. Okay, so with Lord, Lord, Lord of Ubersreich, this is something that I immediately latched on to. And, and I don't think this is spoilers here because I know that third edition, and, and this is one of the things you've talked to us uh, even at Gen Con last year and in the, uh, the seminar at Gen Con, just your love for Warhammer and how, you know, the different editions and the different histories and how the, the official canon of, you know, the Warhammer world has been changed and tweaked over the years and how you have so seamlessly like tied these together where it makes sense, right? How can the the example you use all the time uh, is how can you have the emperor that's both this weak leader, but also this God on the battlefield leading strong, right? You're like, there's a solution for that. I know that's coming in the enemy within. I can't wait to read it. But I feel like you've done that here too, right? Where Ubersreich is a free town in third edition or run by the merchant guilds, right? But in second edition, it's not. And I know the starter set deals a lot with some of that too, again, setting us up for the enemy within. But this adventure, just the whole party that goes on with the nobles and stuff, and you know the disaster that happens helps to set that storyline up, and so I guess again, again, that's a question. I know this was re- a reuse from third edition, but was that intentional in the overall like storyline of Uber's Reich for you? Um, again, that's down to Andy. Um, I just uh, converted the third edition adventure, and um, but you know he he has. Uh, encyclopedic knowledge of the setting through all editions and through novels and comics and everything. It's, it's really so impressive. Um, and so he can keep all of this in his head and he can pull on the strands and, and weave them together. And we've had some great conversation uh, about uh, ways to tie things together um, and about the challenges of making two apparently contradictory things true at the same time. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the emperor. Uh, I always think of uh, the nature of Britannia as well. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a challenge on the one hand, but it can be such fun. It's, it's, one feels so smug when uh, a solution <laughs> comes to hand, which makes, you know, everything that was written in canon simultaneously true, even if it's contradictory. And uh, so we have a lot of fun talking about that kind of stuff. That that is really cool. I, I guess, and I I, I want to. I have one other question about the the adventures, and I think that's from mm-hmm. a standpoint of uh, some of the stuff I've read online is uh, some GMs will actually run these with a real clock running in the background. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know if you've ever done that. Um, or if you have any experience with that, and, and or what are your thoughts on, on using real time to, to run it, run these adventures? Well, uh, I've never done it with any of these adventures. I have played in campaigns where certain scenes have been run in real time in order to create uh, the impression of time pressure, and I've found that to be very effective. Um, the caveat or the reservation that I have about doing these things in real time is that 
doing something within a role-playing game takes a lot longer usually than doing it in real life or it very seldom takes the same amount of time you know if i'm doing something that takes a second or two to do but actually uh the player has to roll dice look up a result gm has to figure out uh, the details of that result um so that can cause time to uh be stretched and, and on the other hand you know you can deal with usually between scenes you can deal with uh, travel just by saying oh you travel from this place to the other but the time very seldom can be made to line up in a one-to-one -one fashion yeah it would, it would have to be a very very specific scene i think for that to to really work yeah in an ideal situation yeah. But I do like the idea in principle of, uh, of running things on a clock to create a feeling of time pressure. The couple of games where I've been a player and the GM has done that quite skillfully, uh, it's uh, really added to the experience. Yeah, I could say myself as a GM, I, for me to feel comfortable doing that, I would have to know the adventure like inside and out, like the back of my hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because... You can't spend any time to look it up. Some of this stuff uh, happens really quickly. <laughs> so, Well, yes, particularly you know, in a, a fast-type situation with certain plots happening all at once and colliding with each other. Right. So five adventures all take place in Reichland, all of them with tons of plot lines going on, uh, tons of adventure seeds that you can build in, tons of ways for your players to get themselves killed, uh, which is very Warhammer. I love it. Um, you got everything from the the evils of chaos to the undead to just, you know, like lovers running away to be with each other. It's 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 very so very Warhammer. And amongst all of this we have like some of the amazing amazing stat blocks like the Countess of Nuln. Just uh, the stat blocks, the artwork, um and like that's one thing I I didn't expect to see with the Opera House. Like, man, there's some major players. It's it's so much. It's more than so. I thought five adventures. You know, some of these were going to be reprints. I I didn't know what to expect. I expected it to be conversions to fourth, but it ended up being way more than what I expected. It's it's almost, and and I I feel like I say this a lot with fourth edition, but it's almost like it's I can use this as a toolbox in addition to just an adventure module. So anyway, I'm, oh, I'm a huge very fan. Much. And, yeah. and that was the intention, you know, as I said earlier, the, uh, once you've played it, it's still useful. Absolutely. So the adventures aren't the only thing that's included in this book. Uh, as we've already talked about, there's a lot of other good things in there. One of them, the first appendix in the back is a new playable race. And that is gnomes. Gnomes. Yeah. Very exciting. So in addition to the, races that are in the core rulebook. We now have gnomes. This goes over a lot of information as to why we haven't had gnomes before and where they've been, why they're not so prevalent in the stories that we already have and in the in, in the books that we already have. So essentially, it, uh, gnomes have been there the whole time. They've just been in hiding of sorts or hiding in plain sight in some cases. So this is gnomes are actually a lot more contentious online than I originally expected them to be. Yes, it, it is a very... People are on one side or the other, apparently. I don't. Gnomes are a very polarizing concept. Um, 
you know, uh, I think people either love them or they uh, they don't. I do remember at Gen Con last year and uh, when I was working on the early enemy within books just now, um, a lot of people, well, it seemed like a lot of people. I think the gnome lobby is like the gnomes themselves, small but extremely vocal. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there are definitely some people who uh, who wanted gnomes and wanted them very badly, and they'd only been done in a kind of half done in first edition and cut from second and third. I can't take any credit for this appendix. I think this was Andy again, and I think he did an absolutely splendid job of uh, weaving them into the setting without making anything look uh, like an afterthought or uh, bolted on the outside. Oh, yeah, I agree. We have a gnome that is in the adventures, right? I don't think that's too big of a of a spoiler there. No, that's, no, that's, that's a real right. thing. Well, there was since first edition. Right. And um, I, that's what kind of kicked the whole thing off. Uh, I think that's what gave Andy the idea because I flagged this character um, when I did the fourth edition version. And I said, you know, we haven't had gnomes since first edition. Uh, when Three Feathers was reprinted, for second edition, they recast the character as a halfling. And Andy just said, nope, nope, we're putting gnomes in. We're going to do it. And <laughs> lo and behold, it happened. Well, I know I know some people, I, I've seen it both ways. I mean, we've been, Twitter has been, uh, and I'm probably not going to say his name right, Padenbod, or it's, uh, I think he's from the Netherlands. He's like basically the main <laughs> gnome Big proponent. Proponent, yeah. For all things gnomish. Yeah, and, and it's there's pretty... A, there's a strong gnome lobby in the northwest of England as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dirk the Dice of the Gronyard podcast oh, yeah. is a, a very uh, strong proponent of gnomes. Where where do you land on the spectrum of loving or hating gnomes, Graham? Um, I have to say I like them a lot. I think they've got a, a, a lot of potential. And I think for the first time, they've got sufficient rules to uh, live up to that potential. When Phil Gallagher did the White Dwarf article on gnomes uh, for first edition, it was basically nothing more than an extended version of puns. Uh, <laughs> most of them stolen from the David Bowie novelty record, The Laughing Gnome. <laughs> and uh, it became very hard to take gnomes seriously. And uh, now we have... Uh, I think we've got a good, solid beginning here. Yeah, I, as a race. I agree. There's, I know there are some people that that are pretty um, anti gnomes, like you know, not my gnome. Um, you know, gnomes not in my Warhammer. But like, mm. one of the nice things about this is it's not. I mean, just like any other role playing game. I mean, play it to the way you like it. So if you don't like gnomes, then don't play them in your game, right? And yeah. So I, I actually I'm glad for them. Uh, I'm I'm pretty much a proponent of give me options. And to be 100% honest, right, as someone that my Warhammer experience has grown up primarily in the Warhammer fantasy battles, right, where gnomes didn't exist at all. And so right. when I first heard about gnomes, I was like, what are you talking about? Warhammer doesn't have gnomes. And uh, I mm -hmm. had to go do some research and find out that they existed in first edition and stuff. So for me, like if it, it existed in first edition, it was there. I kind of, I was like, give me at least the option so that, right. you know, I could see it. And I really liked the way that it worked out. Um, from a rule standpoint too, uh, they, we got gnome gods in here. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, well, even even just um, a little bit back about uh, character creation with gnomes. If you're somebody who likes to let the the dice fall where they do, you've only got a one percent chance of rolling up a character as a gnome. So, unless you want to sacrifice that bonus twenty XP, it's not super likely that you'll see gnomes in your games. The classes and careers that are available, there's quite a few with uh, only a handful of the Riverfolk classes, or, I'm sorry, Riverfolk careers and warrior careers being included in there. I know that the first edition of the PDF that came out did not have warrior priest in there, but they were, that was added right. in the updated PDF, just as a note for people who may already have the PDF in their hands. The So I've, I've made a character with gnomes. The attribute table is interesting some of the ones that are obvious that that they would have a lower um, skill for to start with like strength ballistic skill and toughness are balanced by the fact that they have a willpower that starts at 2d10 plus 40 which is very high yeah so there's definitely some interesting interesting possibilities there another thing that i liked and this is a note that's listed in this chapter is all gnomes are considered to be at least a little bit magical so even if you have a gnome that's not uh, one that would normally use magic, they have the ability to do some do some things with magic in their skills and talents, including a new talent. Right. The the new talent is actually really cool. Um, suffu- suffused with Ulgu. I think I'm saying that wrong, but Ulgu. Ulgu. Yeah. Shadow magic, yeah. basically. That's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I actually, I think it's it's cool. So one of the things that I, I had a concern in going in when I heard gnomes were going to be in this book, I'm like, okay, okay, first, number one, I, I wanted a, a background explanation that explained why are gnomes not really known or heard of, right? Like, and I felt, man, straight on, good, good job, guys. And then the next thing I wanted is I wanted gnomes to feel different. I didn't want them to be a reskinned halfling or just a mini version of a dwarf. Right. I, I wanted it to be its own thing. And yeah, and uh, Andy Law hit this one out of the park. Uh, this this is its own thing. Like I read it and I go, man, I want to play this just to experience a different way to play Warhammer. So, you had mentioned the gnomish gods, which there are three right. that are listed in here that are very interesting, and each god has its own list of strictures as well. So there's Yvonne, who is the god of travel, trade, and thievery. Mabin, who is the god of shadows, revenge, and magic. And Ringel, who is the god of entertainment, merriment, and trickery. And each of those three has its own feel right, right of how, how that character is going to act and how they're going to play. With uh, this whole appendix is only five pages, but there is more than enough information in here to really get a good idea for how gnomes work, how they would play in game. So if you've never played a gnome before or aren't familiar with how that that species is and how they would play, the information is definitely in here to get started. All right, Graham, here's a million dollar question for you. Have you played a gnome in either first or fourth edition yet? Oh. Ah, oh, oh me. Played. Yeah, well, I think that gives you the answer. No, no, I have not. <laughs> um, <laughs> used a couple of NPCs, if that counts, which I suppose it does to an extent. Oh, yeah, that's a good start. Uh, Excellent. Excellent. So uh, how how often do you get 4th edition on the table? I imagine writing the Enemy Within Collector's Edition and, you know, Director's Cut is keeping you super busy. But have you gotten... It- it is indeed. Um, 
Um, you know, occasionally I will run through a section with some dice just to see if it makes any sense the way I've written it. Um, but sad to say, uh, these days I'm kept far too busy writing to have a, a regular, uh, regular play session. I feel like Cubicle 7 needs to foot the bill to send a team out there just to play games with you. <laughs> well, they can pay us and we'll go do it. Right, that's, there you go. See, that's, that's problem mm-hmm. solved. So the last section of this this book is an appendix that is all about pub games. We have touched on these in the past, but there's another, what, uh, two, four, five pages that are all about various pub games that are played in the Empire. And... Again, we we weren't quite sure. We heard that this is going to be included. We weren't quite sure what to expect. But there is a lot of information in here about these pub games. Not just a sentence on what it is and where you'd find it, but it's multiple paragraphs that talk specifically about the rules of the game, how you would play it, how you would see it being played, where you would see it being played. Uh, and that's for each of the 15 different pub games that are listed in here. Jeez, 15. I, 15, dang. yep. Some of them are a little more obvious. Things like um, arm wrestling and darts are, you know, are, are not too dissimilar from what you'd normally see when you were doing things like that. But there's a lot of other games in here that are extremely unique and would really be fun to play. Like Dwile Flonking. Dwile Flonking, indeed. <laughs> Everybody loves that. That's actually a real thing, you know? Really? You can find it on, you can find it on YouTube. It comes from... Uh, the uh, counties of East Anglia in England. And um, I was telling Andy about this because I'd come across it and uh, he just said, oh, that's going in. And uh, yes. he did, did all the rules for it. The only thing I did on that was uh, arm wrestling, which was uh, part of uh, Rough Night and the Three Feathers. Yeah. And, um, you know, of the cubicle seven end, they decided to expand that into a whole uh, appendix on uh, pub games and very good it is too yeah i i'm a i'm of the opinion looking at this that this section is one of the ones that make this like not everybody is going to buy an adventure book right um just some people aren't going to be interested if you know i might be gming i might do my own thing i might think i'm never going to need an adventure book and even if you don't like gnomes like this i mean for the cost of the pdf at least this section is is gold to me like there's so much fun to be had in here that is like off script right you can actually there are rules for these games that can get somewhat more complicated where you can it's like a game within a game um like right. mid and ball is is hilarious i i think i mentioned that before like you, you know get an actual snotling for <laughs> um yeah one thing I that I really appreciate about this is that it just adds to the world building of it, and this these pub games are a way right. of of really making Warhammer feel so much more unique than you know the other fantasy uh, worlds that are out there, and it's these little things that make the world so rich and so full of life. I'm glad you mentioned arm wrestling, Graham. I was I reading through that section on it. It seemed like a no brainer to have some characters you know, arm wrestle to settle a bet or settle a score or something. And then I, am I the only person who is legitimately considering having my actual human players at the table arm wrestle to settle a, a score in character? Cause that seems like that'd be a lot of fun too. 
I'm, I'm sure you're not, but uh, I should point out, of course, that uh, player statistics and character statistics can uh, <laughs> diverge quite considerably. You, you could not be more right. That is true. <laughs> oh, man. Well, in the case of Warhammer, though, sometimes it might actually go to the opposite direction, right? Like D&D, I'm building a character that's way stronger than me. Right. In Warhammer, maybe not. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that that's pretty much everything that's in this book. The the final page, or I guess it's the, the back cover, or no, I guess it'd be whichever it is, it shows the, the cover art for the... Uh, part one of the enemy within the enemy in shadows, and uh, as always, it looks excellent. I uh, I'm I'm really excited. We have obviously already had uh, some of the new section before, as we got release information about kind of what's going to be part of the enemy within, what's going to be part of the companion. I know that you talked at length, Graham, about uh, at last Gen Con about you know including those additional rules, and it, and at that point we were kind of expecting them to be kind of maybe a few pages set aside within, you know, the enemy within book. And we didn't know mm-hmm. it was going to be a companion manual at that point. Uh, so how involved in the companion mo- manuals or the companion module part are you? Are you just doing the adventure part or are you pretty heavily involved in the companion as well? Um, no, no, I'm doing both. Awesome. Um, I'm as far as the companion volumes go, I'm, uh, selecting the stuff for reprint, doing the conversions and um, deciding and creating the uh, new and original content um, with, uh, you know, obviously Andy uh, developing and uh, providing a sounding board so I don't go too off track. Um, For example, in the Enemy in Shadows companion, I'd long wanted to do a, a road-based counterpart to the river travel rules from Death on the Reich, and I set out to do it in the Enemy in Shadows companion, and it got way out of hand. <laughs> uh, all the sort of things that I could imagine happening on the road and the rules that, that, that I came up with to, to deal with them. And Andy was a very good sounding board there and sort of guided me back into the, uh, the path of sanity. Um, <laughs> Well, but uh, yeah, doing a lot there. I'm also, hopefully, in each volume, I'm getting uh, some of the old names together to uh, talk about their experiences of creating the original. So, in the Enemy in Shadows Companion, uh, I've written a page, and I got Phil Gallagher to write a page, just sort of what we remember about the birth of the whole campaign. And uh, so it goes on in the uh, subsequent companions, uh, getting uh, people to, uh, to weigh in and uh, tell us what they remember. Because, uh, you know, for all that we're making this new and exciting and providing ways to make it uh, uh, fresh and original, even for players who are familiar with it, a lot of people remember the enemy within campaign from way back and uh, are interested in uh, hearing from the the people who originally worked on it. Yeah, I actually saw that. I was um, surprised that I didn't know that you guys were going to be getting Phil to come and uh, do a thing. So I'm really excited to read that. 
I'm obviously really excited for the the road rules that you because you were you were talking so passionately about those at Gen Con last year. It's something I've been trying to sell Games Workshop on it since about 1987, and so to finally have the chance to do it, I I think I got a little overexcited. <laughs> well, keep all that that rough draft stuff. I bet you could probably use it as you go along, because uh, I know maybe, maybe. we want to see it. So. <laughs> I think it's really great that you're adding in in the, those companion books that there's going to be some information about the history of Warhammer because at this point it's been around for so long. It has such a rich history and not just a history within the world of Warhammer but within the world of those who created it. So I'm sure that the people who have been fans of Warhammer and who have played it since that first edition are going to find a lot of value in those companion books. Well, I hope so too. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a huge part of my life off and on down the years. And uh, I, I just can't say how much fun I'm having um, making the director's cut, building it out uh, without some of the restrictions that uh, happened the uh, first time around for various very good commercial reasons on Games Workshop's part. Sure. But, um, and uh, also to, to be able to smooth out some things that, uh, you know, didn't work out too well. We've got 30 years of, um, of playtesting, essentially, of player feedback, uh, which we can uh, count on now and take account of. And uh, I'm, I couldn't be happier with the way it's going. Cool. Well, let's, we'll take a minute here to kind of summarize our final thoughts on this product as a whole. I think Lance, you and I will kind of go first and then Graham will give you some time just to, to go over kind of whatever, whatever you want to say about rough nights and hard days and we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. So okay. I, I'll start by saying that I think this is a phenomenal source book. I don't necessarily think it's something that Warhammer players are going to need, but I think Warhammer GMs, this is something that is a uh, must purchase for a lot of different reasons. Having the rules for gnomes and pub games are cool, are very neat, but the amount of information for the different settings, the different scenarios, the maps, all of the stat blocks that are in here, there's so many. The art is so is as good as we come to expect. It's a, it's a no brainer. I think it's a, it's an excellent piece of work. I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting the official copy in my hands and not just the PDF. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Yeah, I almost have to agree. I have to agree with almost everything you said there. Uh, I would say that as a player, if you're one of those people that was pro-gnome, this is obviously a must-buy. I mean, just for the gnome stuff alone, you're going to want that as you play your gnome. But My my love of gnomes, all things gnomish, came from playing World of Warcraft, so... That is can now delightfully be carried on into my playing of Warhammer as well. Excellent. Except in a more deadly sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree. There are going to be very few GMs that I don't think would benefit from purchasing this. Like I said, even though the pub games is worth the cost of the PDF by itself. I would I would really argue that. Along with, you know, the stat blocks and everything, even if you never use the adventures. But the adventures are great. I actually plan to use some different bits and pieces through some of these. So I've been trying to keep my players away from reading some of them. I've tried not to 
just just on the chance that you end up running mm. this for me at some point, I've not dug into the real nitty gritty of the of each adventure just yeah. to, just to be on the safe side. But yeah, for me uh, again as a GM, I agree hundred percent. This is a must buy uh, if you're going to be running any sort of campaign for sure. It's great stuff. So I, I good job, Graham. We love it. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you very much. It's very nice to hear. So I, I'm assuming you're happy with the way everything turned out on it as well. Oh, yes, I couldn't be happier. You know, as I say, I, I just um, did the five adventures, and these two great appendices came from Cubicle 7. And uh, it's great to see, as you said, not only the, uh, the quality of production and the, the thought that went into the appendices, but uh, just to know that there's uh, there are other people out there with... Uh, basically the same outlook I have uh, and the same seeing the game and the world the same way and uh, being able to develop in ways that just make so much sense to me and which I wish I'd done myself. (laughs) Before we move on, do you want to just take a few more minutes and, and is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention specifically about this book? Um, No, I think you covered everything very thoroughly. Uh, can't think of a, a single thing. Okay, excellent. So we have a section for listener questions. Uh, we'll continue that regular segment here. Mm-hmm. So before we discuss these questions tonight, we're going to discuss how someone can get us those questions. Uh, so first off, you can look us up on social media, on Twitter or Facebook, or you can email us at questions at oldworldpodcast.com. Just honestly, you can just Google Old World Podcast. We're pretty much everywhere. It's not hard to find us. And uh, send us these questions this way. Yes, definitely. We we intend to keep this segment going. So as long as you're sending us questions, we'll do what we can to answer them. So our first question tonight is from Adam Buxton on Twitter. Adam writes, hi, I just discovered your podcasts. Loving the actual plays. Can I ask if this adventure is available somewhere or did you just create it yourself? Thanks. Right, so this is like the worst place to put this because we got Graham Davis on the thing here. I am nowhere near a caliber of an adventure writer as Graham Davis. So let me let me start off by saying, check out Rough Nights and Hard Days if you want a good a, a good adventure. <laughs> now, for my adventure, I've had a few people ask about this, um, and it's not just mine. Matt and I actually collaborate a lot. We do some uh, some different levels of co GMing depending on the episode and stuff, um, but we do not have uh, anything like pre-done out. I mean, literally, it's my notebook scribbled with notes and maps and stuff. It probably wouldn't make a lot of sense to anybody except me. Um, Maybe one day uh, we might do it as like a patron exclusive or something like that. But the amount of work it would take to make it like readable and it would be nowhere near the quality of what you can already get from Google 7. Anyway, so the short answer is no, I don't have that. You know, maybe one day if we get enough people asking. But Sure. And I'd also like to add that we do... Lance, you you dig in a lot more into the the ideas and the concepts behind what you the decisions you made in some of the different parts of our actual play in that new campaign deconstruction mini podcast. Right. So Adam and all of our listeners are welcome to go listen to that. See if that's something that might kind of answer this question a little bit more is or or at least that can help you understand i guess some of the thought processes as to why right. we do did certain things the a certain way yeah my advice and maybe this would be a better thing that for graham to say but my advice is if you're if you're new to writing an adventure and you're looking for something uh number one look at pre-published and because in a lot of ways it'll save you and if you do look at pre-published 
then the, the biggest piece of advice, I, and Graham said it earlier, don't panic. Just do the best you can. Read it a couple of times and run it. Uh, you're only going to get better by actually running stuff. And eventually you'll come up with your own ideas and you run with that too. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's how I got started. Um, you know, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, all back when we had to carve our own dice out of flint. And, <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, play a, a module and I look at it and read it and run it and um, change some things about it that I didn't like. And eventually I ended up writing all my own stuff. And uh, then eventually people started paying me for it. And, uh, you know, I'm still, <laughs> my, my father never really believed that I had a proper job. He really couldn't understand what was going on <laughs> at all. Well, let me tell you, my wallet certainly thinks you have a proper job. <laughs> because, oh, thank you. Oh, man. All right, so let's move on to our second question. So our second question actually comes from a few different sources, but we received several emails from John and Jason, uh, several other people, basically asking what our predictions are for releases and timelines. And to be clear, Graham, we, we understand you have like limits on things you can say, so don't feel obliged to say anything here. Um, but, uh, okay. but basically... Um, you know, we have to be careful what we say too. So one of the advantages uh, that we have is because of our podcast, we dig into every tiny little thread that gets released about from cubicle seven or other sources about what up. So here's what we can say about what we know. And we want to underscore absolutely hugely that nothing that we're saying comes from any source that would be, this is just us making predictions based on information we've seen. And we're even scared to do that because you just don't know. Something could go, and I know Graham said this before, you, you could take a, a book like almost up to where it's going to be announced and released, and then the whole project gets cut. That can happen. So, Well, it's worth noting, too, that we already have a pretty a laundry list of products that, have, that are official and are coming out in right. the near future. Right. So you have the enemy within. Right. Right. I mean, so, even, even Rough Nights and Hard Days, right? That isn't technically physically in our hands yet right right so we yeah rough nights and hard days um you have the enemy within we just had release of the buildings of the reichland pdf i know for a fact that um and this isn't secret or anything it's been said by andy law it's been said by ts out in the public wilds out there that additional pdfs will be coming uh, i don't know when or what those will look like there are going to be additional pdfs in between some of these releases um, we do know that we're going to potentially get dice, maybe. Um, that's a big maybe, like from like the starter set dice, maybe re-release where you can buy them separately. We obviously have five companion books to go with the five enemy within releases, which uh, Graham is working on. I have no reason to believe this, but I would imagine that we're going to see Traveling on the Waterways come out for with a fourth edition port, but I don't know that for sure. There's some obvious ones. Right. Right, like a, a magic supplement. Yeah, we know that's coming. Everybody's talking about that. But when and, and, or what it'll look like, right. we don't know. And, and even the way that 4th edition has been designed so far with the, the core book being all about the Reichland. Well, there's plenty of other regions that are out there. And there's no question whatsoever that we're yeah. going to get more regions throughout Nordland, Middenland, you know, and beyond the Empire, too. Uh, even at the very beginning, Dominic McDowell said uh, at last year's UKGE that something he's always wanted to do is a source book for Lustria, something that's 
designed as a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an expedition, right? Sure. Um, which that sounds awesome. Uh, he even mentioned like an elf-based source book with uh, you know dark elves and and high elves. You know, so these, I mean, again, these are just ideas. These are things that have been said, you know, out there in public, but until they announce a product, there's no way to know. And that product could change drastically from the idea that's proposed to what actually gets released. Well, and I think that if anybody out there is concerned that that there's not going to be a lot of bonus content and supplementary content that comes out, I think you should uh, kind of put your, put your mind at ease because the core book has hasn't even been out a year yet and we already have a starter set we already have uh, another source book an adventure book that's coming out and another 10 that have been announced officially announced with uh, a timeline so right there's going to be plenty of warhammer goodness i can yeah and i'd I'd like to just uh, emphasize that point because um i know that some people have been concerned that because there's so much attention on the enemy within director's cut, some people are afraid that it's the only thing that's ever going to come out for the fourth edition, or uh, you know, or fourth edition is going to consist entirely of uh, reprints, and uh, that is simply not the case. Um, as you said, I, I can't tell all that I know, and I know that I don't know everything there is to know, but uh, from what I've heard, there's going to be plenty of new original uh, content, uh, not just the new content in the enemy within Director's Cut, but whole new products. Um, Cubicle 7 is taking the Warhammer license extremely seriously. They're very great fans of it and have been uh, for years or decades in some cases, and they're determined to, to do it justice and produce the kind of things that that they wanted to see when they were players. And I think a gr- what you can also do is look at what Cubicle 7 specifically has done with the Doctor Who license, with the Lord of the Rings, the One Ring license. There are shelves worth of books, source books, that are for each of those different systems. So I don't think there's any reason why we should expect anything different for Warhammer. No, and I expect we'll get more information at Gen Con in our special seminar with Graham Davis, right, Graham? <laughs> wink wink he's like i can't say anything <laughs> wink, wink. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> i am saying nothing for now fair enough well definitely all of our listeners out there keep an eye on cubicle sevens twitter on our twitter because we always share uh, any information that we get once it's out there um warhammer wednesdays are a great source of of new information upcoming information so there's there's going to be plenty so thank you to everyone who has sent us in questions. Again, if you have any questions that you can think of that you want us to answer on air, uh, send it to us on Twitter or email or any of the variety of ways that you can contact us. Absolutely. So so guys, that is the end of our show tonight. First off, I want to say thank you so much, Graham, for joining us and to, to talk about rough nights and hard days. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Before we go, we have one question for you that uh, this may be the the most anticipated question. It certainly is for me. For, yeah. It's kind of a tradition now, and I look forward to it. Yes. So, Graham, can you tell us what your favorite experience has ever been in a Wolf Rope game? Mm. I imagine this well, might... This, <laughs> you've got plenty of, plenty of memories, I'm sure, to, <laughs> to pull from over the years. 
I think my favorite experience is actually my first experience, the very first playtest I took part in. Uh, I was playtesting the Schaffenfest from Shadows Over Bogenhafen. This would have been in about May or June of 1986. Um, Shadows Over Bogenhafen hadn't been finished. The first edition Wolfrop rules were still in development. And, uh, but I knew there'd be a market town, it would have a fair, it would have certain events. And uh, so the, uh, the whole point was to have the goblin escape and lead the uh, PCs into the sewers so they could discover the secret temple. And I'm not going to say anything else uh, for fear of too much in the way of spoilers. But um, so the beastie escaped running off. The PCs were in hot pursuit. They were catching up far too quickly. And it was clear that the whole section of the adventure would be derailed because they'd be able to catch the goblin before he got into the sewers. So I suddenly just wildly improvising gave him an extra point of movement and said, oh, by the way, it's a mutant goblin. It's got three legs. <laughs> and, and if you look at the, um, the cover for Enemy in Shadows that Cubicle 7 has teased, there's your three-legged goblin. And it all happened because of one moment of GM improvisation <laughs> in the face of the unexpected. I completely missed that. I did not notice that goblin had three legs. Oh, yes. That's awesome. That is a wonderful Easter egg for the cover of that book. <laughs> That's a great story. And goes to show how, how, as a GM, who cares what the rules say? You, you can make a <laughs> goblin have three legs or four legs or sprout wings or anything if it makes sense or if you need it to happen. That's right. It's, it's whatever works. <laughs> awesome. All right. All right, listeners, old worlders, in our next discussion episode, we will likely be doing another career review. Uh, this time we're going to be digging into the Slayer and the Bailiff, unless something, we have a very fluid schedule this summer. We have a lot going on. It's That is likely what you're going to be looking for uh, in our next discussion episode. I do know that we're, we have another one in the pipeline that we're still waiting on final details on, but we're going to be doing an episode about the fourth edition artwork. That's going to be an exciting one as well. But uh, that's kind of what we're looking at for the near future. Indeed, stay tuned. Okay. Also, keep in touch with us. Let us know your questions, feedback, and even show topic suggestions. You can contact us multiple ways by checking out our website, www.oldworldpodcast.com. Twitter is at Old World Podcast, and Facebook is facebook.com slash oldworldpodcast. And while you're checking out the various social interwebs, be sure to hop on over to our Patreon page and support us. If you like what we're doing and want to help out, become a patron. For only a couple dollars a month, you can help support the show and get some cool rewards too. Check us out at patreon.com forward slash old world podcast. Also, let us know what you think. Visit iTunes or your preferred podcast service and rate us. Every review helps us reach even more Warhammer fans. All right, Graham, for our listeners out there who want to keep up with what you have going on, what are some ways where they can find you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter at Graham J. Davis, uh, WordPress, uh, Graham Davis, 
Although I have to say I've been so busy with the enemy within lately, I haven't updated it in months. So, uh, but you will find some uh, old Wolfrop memories as Dad even wrote something about the Three Feathers a few years ago. Oh, cool. And uh, I also have an author page on Facebook. Very cool. Okay. So, this is Lance saying good night, and you don't have to believe in gnomes for them to pick your pocket. This is Matt. If you happen across a demon of corn, well, it was nice knowing you. And this is Graham saying, fight chaos, not each other. Nah, that's a good one. That was great. Awesome. This podcast and related website are completely unofficial and are not endorsed by Games Workshop Limited or Cubicle 7 Entertainment. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. GW Games Workshop, Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and all associated logos, illustrations, images, names, creatures, races, vehicles, locations, weapons, characters, and the distinctive likenesses thereof are registered trademarks of Games Workshop Limited, Cubicle 7 Entertainment, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio or video information, is the intellectual property of the Old World Podcast and Crimson Tower Studios, LLC.